Hello, and welcome to What to Say When Things Get Tough, a podcast devoted to helping you communicate effectively in difficult situations, both personal and professional. I'm your host, Leonard Greenberger, and before we delve into today's topic, I wanted to point out a bit of news that broke last week that's relevant to what we discuss here. And that is, if you recall, I mentioned during our discussion of the code, caring, openness, dedication, and expertise that you need in order to establish and maintain trust and credibility with your audience in a difficult situation. I mentioned that Al Gore, way back in 2000, during the 2000 presidential election, got some very good press when he stayed behind at some of the events he held on the campaign trail and answered individual people's questions after the presentation or talk that he or speech that he gave. And some of the reporters on the campaign trail were actually impressed by that because, of course, a presidential candidate is going from place to place, nearly always late, having to get to the next stop, to the next town, the next speech. But he actually took time to chat with people one-on-one after the events. And I do remember there was a very long article in USA Today devoted entirely to that topic, the fact that a busy presidential candidate, the vice president of the United States at the time, took some time when he was on the campaign trail to talk to people one-on-one. Boy, did that boost his code score. They didn't say that in the USA Today article. I'm saying that here. And lo and behold, last week, Joe Biden, the Democratic candidate for president here in 2020, got some very good press in a number of publications and online venues for exactly the same thing, for staying behind after a speech and talking to people one-on-one. I work with a lot of clients that hold public meetings with audiences that are very often angry, worried, and suspicious, and they're concerned about what's happening, and don't trust my clients as sources of information. And one of the things I encourage them to do is to get to those meetings early, to talk to people one-on-one before the meeting begins, try to diffuse some of their anger, try to answer some of their questions, and to demonstrate to them that they are a dedicated and committed person, that they are attending this meeting, that they are taking their questions, not because they have to, but because they want to. And I also encourage them to stay after the meeting is over and talk to people one-on-one. Answer questions they may have that they were bashful or afraid to ask during the public meeting. As I tell them, not only will that boost your code score with the people you're actually talking to before and after the meeting, it'll boost your code score with everybody else who sees you doing that. So people who see you interacting with people one-on-one before and after a meeting are going to award you code score points because they see you being dedicated and committed to understanding their concerns, to trying to address their concerns, to understand their fears, and to generally just be human. Last week, we began our discussion of how important and powerful nonverbal cues can be when you're communicating in a difficult situation. Research shows that nonverbal messages are three times more powerful than verbal messages in difficult situations. So the things you don't say matter a lot more than the things you do say. What you do with your eyes, what you do with your hands, how you dress. Those are the three topics we covered last week. There are dozens and dozens of nonverbal cues that people take into account as they decide whether or not you're a trustworthy and credible source of information. So today we're going to cover numbers four, five, and six. The mucous membrane syndrome, barriers, and posture. Let's start with the mucous membrane syndrome, which is everybody's favorite. The mucous membrane syndrome is a physiological reaction that most of us have 
when we're placed into stressful situations. Because of that stress, our body begins to react. One of the very common reactions to stress is to sweat, for example. With the mucous membrane syndrome, stress can cause our mucous membranes to dry up. And when that happens, we tend to touch our face because it can be itchy. We tend to blink more than we normally would, or sometimes less. And we often lick our lips because they begin to get dry. All of these things send negative nonverbal signals in a difficult situation, so we want to avoid doing them. The average person can form hundreds of different facial expressions, many of which last for less than a second, and all of which convey one of the six universal emotions that were first identified in 1972. Dr. Paul Ekman, an American psychologist, is the one who identified these, and he listed them as anger, contempt slash disgust, fear, joy slash happiness, sadness, and surprise. Later in his research, Ekman expanded his list to include 11 more emotions, but we'll stick to those here. If you'd like to have a deeper dive into what I consider to be this fascinating subject, I'll include a link in the show notes to the third edition of Dr. Ekman's Emotion in the Human Face, so you can look into it and maybe order a copy if this is something you'd like to hear more about. So whether fleeting or universal, every one of these facial expressions sends a message, of course. And it sends messages in different ways. It depends on the context in which the message is sent. So again, as I've said many times, if you're in a low-concern, high-trust situation, if you're talking to your friends, to your family, to your colleagues, and assuming nobody's mad at you or upset, those facial expressions will send one nonverbal cue. If people are, if, pe if you're in a high-concern and low-trust situation where people are angry and worried and suspicious, then those facial expressions send a very different signal. And since we're in that realm, in the realm where people are concerned and distrustful, they're going to interpret every message you send, again, this is true of anything you do, in the most negative light. And so your goal is to limit your facial expressions to those that convey, you guessed it, caring, openness, dedication, and expertise. Now that can be hard to do. It takes a long time to train my clients to maintain what I would call as neutral an expression as possible. Everything from a furrowed brow which may come across as caring and dedicated to some, will come across to others as skepticism or even disdain. And so you just have to eliminate that from your facial expression repertoire. But mostly we work with our clients to avoid what we consider to be four very big pitfalls when it comes to facial expression in tough situations. These are all pitfalls that fall under that broad category of the mucous membrane syndrome. And there's physiology going on here. What's happening when we're nervous or when we lie, is that our brains release chemicals known as catecholamines. And among many other physiological effects that they can have, they cause mucous membranes inside the mouth and nose to dry out, and in some cases to swell. This causes nerve endings in the face to tingle. And so in simple terms, catecholamines make us itch. And when we itch, we scratch and do other things. Some call the mucous membrane syndrome the Pinocchio effect because of the effect it can have on our nose and cause us to scratch our nose, touch our nose, and otherwise send negative nonverbal messages in high concern, low trust situations. The bottom line when it comes to touching your face in difficult situations is that you shouldn't. And the only way I know to avoid that is to prepare, prepare, prepare. In other words, I'm going to assume you're not lying to people, so that's not gonna trigger the mucous membrane syndrome, but you might be nervous if you're not well prepared. 
Another aspect of the mucous membrane syndrome that can come into play when you're communicating in difficult situations is that you may blink too much or too little. Experts have found that the rate at which most people blink is closely connected to whether they are experiencing a pleasant or unpleasant feeling. Dr. Joseph Tetchy, a body language expert at Boston College, argues that while blink rate does not necessarily correlate with lying, although there are other experts that believe it does, it very definitely influences perception in a negative way. Just as an example, Dr. Tetchy has found in his research that in every presidential contest from 1980 to 2008, and this is the exception of 2000, when George W. Bush lost the popular vote to Al Gore, uh, but still won the presidency, the candidate with the fastest blink rate during the presidential debates went on to lose the election. Now, Barack Obama broke the streak in 2012 when he defeated Mitt Romney, even though he blinked much faster during their first debate. But generally, you want to avoid blinking at a rate that is going to distract from what you're saying. You don't want to blink too much, you don't want to blink too little, or you'll look like a robot and risk offending people who don't like to be stared or glared at. Nervous situations, like difficult communications, can bring on too much or too little blinking. You just have to make sure that you're well prepared so that you don't blink at a rate that is going to distract people, send to some a negative signal about your trustworthiness and credibility. In preparation for recording this episode, I went back and watched some of the first presidential debate between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, and there is a clear-cut winner, if you will, in terms of which candidate blinked most during that debate. By far, it was President Trump. So if we go by history, with the exception of Barack Obama's defeat of Mitt Romney in 2012, this one data point would suggest in two weeks, Joe Biden is looking at a victory in the 2020 presidential election. To avoid sending negative signals when it comes to how much you blink in a difficult communication situation, there are two things to do. First, record yourself or have somebody record you while you're practicing or preparing to give your presentation. And then look back and take a look at your blink rate. Does it seem too fast? Does it seem too slow? If it does, then that's something you need to work on. And the second thing to do is, again, practice, practice, practice. Blink rate is affected by your level of nervousness. If you're too nervous, it can affect that. So make sure that you've prepared well enough that you're not gonna be nervous other than the general sort of anxiety that can come with appearing before a group of angry, worried, and suspicious people, you want to make sure that you're comfortable with your presentation and that you're ready to go. That will help weed out some of these negative signals you can send as a result of the mucous membrane syndrome. And finally, you want to make sure that you're not licking your lips when you're communicating with somebody in a difficult situation. And here too, the key is to be well prepared so that you won't be nervous, so that you don't trigger the mucous membrane syndrome, and so you don't lick your lips while you're communicating. The other thing to do, of course, is to make sure that you're well hydrated before you go into a difficult communication situation, particularly if you're giving a presentation at a public meeting in front of an angry, worried, and suspicious audience. You want to make sure that you've had enough water that you're not going to dry up simply because you're becoming dehydrated. But be careful not to drink too much because you don't want to be hopping around, crossing or uncrossing your legs, or otherwise sending negative nonverbal messages because you have to go to the now let's talk a little bit about barriers. I've actually mentioned this on several episodes of the podcast, including last week when I talked about what you need to do with your hands in order to send good, positive, nonverbal messages. One of the things you shouldn't do is cross your arms for two reasons. One, 
when people cross their arms, they hide either one or in some cases both of their hands, which is a definite don't. And the other reason not to do it is because it creates a physical barrier between you and your friend. Barriers send all the wrong nonverbal signals in difficult situations because they send the signal that, that you're separate from the group, that you are worried about whether or not the group is going to attack you. The physical barriers such as desks, tables, lecterns, all of those things do the same thing in a difficult situation. They separate you from your audience, and when your goal is to score code points by becoming accepted, liked, and believed, the last thing you want to do is put a barrier between you and your audience. They can also become crutches, by the way. Most people who stand behind a lectern lean on it or hold it, and that not only sends the wrong message because you put a barrier in between you and your audience, but in that case, you're also hiding your hands. And in some cases, it can be a distraction because some people will tap on the side or bang on it for emphasis. So please just get rid of those barriers. If you call an employee into your office for a difficult situation, move your chair out from behind your desk or get up and sit in the chair across from the person you're going to speak to. And when you're speaking in front of a large group, ask for a lavalier microphone, which clips to your tie or your shirt or your jacket so you don't have to hold a microphone and you don't have to stand behind a table. Now this is going to be a relatively old reference. I can't believe this, but it goes back almost 30 years now. Now as commander of the coalition forces during the first Gulf War, General Norman Schwarzkopf proved himself to be unnatural when it came to communicating effectively in difficult situations. He used every one of the techniques that we've discussed in this podcast to full advantage. And one of those was that when he was giving briefings to the press, he often came out from behind his lectern to point to maps that were set up behind him, or just generally to discuss, point, or answer a question from a reporter without having a barrier in between the two of them. And finally, let's talk about posture. Now, when it comes to how you stand or sit in a difficult communication situation, the key to breaking through and winning people over is really the same as it is for any of these other nonverbal cues. You have to send the signals that are going to show that you're caring, open, and dedicated. Most importantly, in whether you're sitting or standing, your feet should be still. If you're standing up in front of an audience, plant both feet firmly on the floor, unless, of course, you're adept at moving around a stage or a room, which can be okay as long as you don't move too quickly and distract people. Because in tough situations, people will interpret nervous feet, as I call it, as a sign that you're uncomfortable at best or lying at worst. When you're sitting, an open posture is best. Sit on the edge of the chair and lean in towards your audience, or if you're doing a media interview, lean in toward the reporter. Though not so forward that you would invade the audience's personal space. Many men, and myself included, like to rest one foot or ankle on the other knee. That's all right, as long as you continue to lean forward. Crossing one leg one over another, or wrapping one foot around the other, as women tend to do, also is acceptable. And in both cases, just remember not to cross your arms, because that creates a barrier and hides your hands. And also keep in mind the rules for the proper use of your hands. If the chair has arms, rest your elbows on them and hold your hands in front of you. Don't clasp them together. And as I mentioned in the discussion of hands in the previous episode, open your hands and show them to the audience as often as you can. And whether you're standing or sitting, keep your hips square, your shoulders square, face your audience. If you're addressing an individual or a group, like responding to a question, for example, step slightly toward the person and square yourself to her. And when you're done, step back and square yourself to the center of the room again. No matter the situation, you should always be leaning slightly toward your audience, again, without invading anyone's personal space. And by doing this, you're signaling to your audience that you're interested in and care about what they have to say and that you welcome their thoughts and questions. 
And by the way, if you are leaning in and showing that you're engaged during a media interview, it's not just, of course, for the reporter's benefit. To the extent that you're captured on camera, it's going to demonstrate to the people who are going to see this interview that you're caring, open, and dedicated. And it comes with the added benefit that if you do this with a reporter, the reporter is likely to treat you a little better, more positively, perhaps not fire as many difficult questions at you as they may have planned before the interview began. And the head is the last stop on our tour of proper body posture, and the same rules apply. Now keep your head still and level. If you tilt your head too far back, you can appear superior and aloof. If you tilt too far forward, it can be a little creepy. And perhaps the toughest trap to avoid when it comes to head posture is nodding or shaking your head when someone is speaking to you, particularly in a difficult situation when they're asking you a negative question or an angry question. Many people will nod along during an accusation as if they're trying to say, I understand or I hear you. And again, in non-difficult situation, that's just fine. But in a high concern, low trust situation, that's not the nonverbal message you're sending. You're not saying, I understand. Instead, what you're saying is the accusation you're making is true, or you have a good reason to be angry, worried, and suspicious. Now, some clients will do the opposite. They'll shake their heads back and forth to suggest they disagree with the accusation, also understandable, but that's not the message that will be received. Instead, the audience is going to interpret a head shake as a sign that you're dismissing the accusation and the underlying concern as unworthy or irrelevant. That's going to knock down your code score. So, as with so many other techniques and when involved in communicating effectively in difficult situations, the best way to become comfortable with body posture is to practice in front of a mirror so you can judge for yourself the nonverbal signals that you're sending and fix any problems that you see based on what you've learned today and from last week's episode. Remember that effective communication in a tough situation is a performance. Actors and dancers, as well as TV anchorman like my brother, spend hours and hours staring at themselves in the mirror. That's what I remember from the two of us growing up. I would watch TV and my brother would stare at himself in the mirror. They understand that for any skill, practice makes perfect. So between last week and this week, we covered six of the most important nonverbal cues that you can send to your audience when communicating in a difficult situation and what you need to make sure that you're sending all the right nonverbal signals rather than the wrong nonverbal signals. I was only planning to do these two episodes because I thought I'd cover the what I consider to be the most important six nonverbal cues that you can send. But given the response to last week's episode, which was more positive than it has been for any of the other episodes in this podcast, I think I'll plan to some of the other nonverbal messages that you can send. It'll be interesting to me too, because I tend to focus on the six we covered and I don't delve into some of the others quite so much. So it'll be an opportunity for me to learn a little something along the way here too. As always, thank you to Jim Cirillo for our original music. You can find more about him and the good work that he does at jimmyumgroup.com. Thank you to C.C. Snetzinger for the original podcast art. Please email any questions you may have to wtswtgt at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at wtswtgt. Until next time, always be positive.